You're watching Meet the Pressers. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. Welcome to Meet the Pressers. This is a safe place for people to talk about guns, gear, training, gadgets, politics, and political activism. And I'm Matt Mallory, and my co-host, Clint Macro here, have a special guest today, Dominic Giacona. He's a local attorney in the Syracuse area, where, where I'm based out of, and we're going to talk a little bit about New York State and the lawsuit at SCOTUS. This episode of Meet the Pressers is made possible with the generous support of Mantis X. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Caltech, Next Level Training, ASP, Saber Red, and the Law of Self-Defense. Car Firearms Group, the Safer Faster Defense Responder, 2.0, Shooter Technology Group, and Henry Rifles. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It's a really interesting case development, uh, this progression over the past few years or so. This case, New York State Rifle versus the City of New York, it came to be because of a, a local city ordinance in New York City that prohibited um, law-abiding law citizens with premises license for their handguns to transport them outside of the city limits. Uh, there were some provisions in the local law that permitted them uh, those legally uh, law-abiding citizens who had the premises license to transport them to various ranges, and there's some other exceptions. The problem was um, there's only like six gun ranges within the city of New York. You have millions of people, and it's a significant problem and a hindrance. Uh, people that want to train with their handguns and uh, sharpen their self-defense skills really restricted from doing so because they could only do it within the city limits. It was overcrowded. And what they also found is some of these surrounding um, uh, gun ranges um, in the New Jersey area were much more fit to provide proper self-defense. Um, you know, you could do, uh, you could shoot using moving targets, um, moving self-defense self-defense tactics could be taught uh, because the ranges were generally larger and more accommodating. So these um, uh, premises holders, what they wanted to do is they wanted to transport their handguns uh, locked in their vehicles, unloaded, uh, to these premises outside of the city of New York, and this local ordinance in the city prohibited it. Uh, meanwhile, the um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association challenged the validity of that local ordinance um, and went through the federal court system up to the second court of appeals um, uh, for the U.S. yeah U.S. district second court um, and which is the um, it's the rung right below the United States Supreme Court. Um, the second uh, second district has a history of um, not applying the proper standards and law uh, to um, questions of um, legality when it comes to um, Second Amendment uh, infringing uh, legislation. Um, it's generally it's generally known that they that although the standards that have been 
dictated by SCOTUS are uh, un, a bit unworkable and cumbersome, and there's not complete um, agreement among the courts of appeals as to how to apply a Second Amendment scrutiny standard. Um, the Second Circuit has uh, been criticized for blatantly disregarding uh, the most uh, persuasive case that the Supreme Court has passed, uh, and that's uh, District of Columbia versus Heller 2008 case, uh, the seminal case for um, establishing the Second Amendment as an individual right for the private citizens of our country, not a right that uh, extends to a to a group of persons that would be considered a militia, you know. So, so, um, so th so this <clears throat> going to the Supreme Court is is it's been a very long time since anything in this area in the second district's gone that gone that far. So th this could open up a big can. This could actually open up the floodgates to try to start changing things in New York for the better. Would you agree? Maybe. It, it would. It would. Um, and that was the hope. And actually, that was the fear for the state legislatures of New York. Um, they became fearful when uh, SCOTUS announced that it, it had granted certiari to accept this case uh, for, for uh, review. Um, and the reason for that is, it, you know, for those of, uh, of our viewers that are unaware, uh, there is something like six to 7,000 cases that are uh, that go to the Supreme Court every year uh, with a request to be heard. And that request to be heard is called a writ of certiorari. Of those six or 7,000 requests, the US Supreme Court hears about 150 of them. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly difficult to, um, to expect that your case would be heard at the uh, at SCOTUS level. Um, and the reason for that, well, because that of those, you know, jarring statistics it's a widely accepted principle and that if scotus grants review of your case there's a good chance they're going to overturn the lower court's ruling <laughs> because uh otherwise why would they have accepted the case right. okay uh, there are instances where they uh, they still do affirm the lower court's ruling uh, instances where they typically do that or where there's um uncertainty among the circuits you know, the Second Circuit applies a legal standard in one way, and the Ninth Circuit does it in a different way. And right. there's a general, um, uh, there's no general consensus in how the law is applied. Um, SCOTUS may still take the case up at the at that level, and they may aff affirm a lower court's ruling, but to do so uh, to provide guiding precedent for the remainder of the circuit courts. But um, in this case. It was pretty clear and apparent that when SCOTUS granted uh, certiorari, they were going to overturn the city of New York's ordinance. And uh, given the uh, additions of uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch and, and Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, uh, they reasonably expected that the uh, framework that was started in a DC versus Heller would be expanded upon to um, provide more guiding framework for what would make a Second Amendment um, infringing piece of legislation legal or not. And because of being scared, because of that concern, the legislature of uh, state of New York passed a, a, state or, a state law that permitted the transport of handguns um, uh, so long as the transport is by the licensee and is continuous and uninterrupted to the destination. 
So was it their hope that then the, they would see that case as moot after they passed yes. that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Clint. So, um, you know, one of the principles of uh, Article three of our Constitution is that for the Supreme Court, well, for any of the federal courts to hear a case, there has to be a live case in controversy. OK, the um, the courts can't provide what are called advisory opinions, you know, um, just uh, hey, there's no active case or controversy, but this is how we would rule. They can't do that. There has to be an active case in controversy. So if the issue that's being appealed is no longer an issue, then the court can no longer proceed with the case. So by, by passing this state ordinance, that's exactly what the state of New York tried to do, is they tried to moot the case. They didn't want the Supreme Court to issue a ruling. It may be that this case that we've been all looking for uh, to expand the framework for Second Amendment protections may not be um, the shining star we hope it to be. It's possible that SCOTUS does not hear the case or that does not um, make a decision because of the mootness factor. Yeah. You know, that's, and, and that's kind yeah. That's kind of what we've been clued in on from the from the oral arguments that uh, occurred in December. Um, There's about an hour long oral argument, and we heard from um, the uh, attorneys from the various sides. Uh, but there is a very there's an interesting issue that um, that's brought up by the by the State Rifle Association's attorney. Um, he says, "Well, listen, if you look at the at the at the state law, it really doesn't give." give us what we would have otherwise been entitled to um, had the Second Circuit granted what we were looking for. That's key because that is a determination of mootness. Um, and what he's, he's using to justify that position is in the state law, the new one that was passed, it's this clause that says continuous and uninterrupted travel is permitted. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that Ambiguous. if I want to transport my handgun from my home in New York City to a range in New Jersey, can yes, I stop I mean, for a coffee break? Right? No. Can I stop to put gas in my car? Because right. technically, that's not continuous and that's not uninterrupted. Right. So yeah. Very uh, vague. It's a lot it, like uh, 926A, the interstate transportation is very vague so that they can catch you in it if they, need, you know, if they want to, they can use it against you. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, yeah. our transportation law is pretty nasty, and it's like that. You have to be going from point A to point B, and, and I know they have nailed people on that if they stop to get gas or grab a sandwich. Now, generally, those folks that they nail, they were trying to get them for something else, and they use that as an excuse, but still, it's something that's enforceable, right? Yeah. And it's unreasonable, in my opinion. And, and that's kind of the key barometer for, for Second Amendment uh, restrictions is whether it's reasonable. Uh, it's not the standard that Heller articulated, but um, that common sense principle is pretty much underpinning uh, the logic and reason that the Supreme Court did, uh, did state. Meet the Pressers. I'm here at Cutting Edge Bullets booth here at the Great American Outdoor Show with Samantha, and she's going to talk to you about the PhD line of defensive ammunition. Hi everyone, so we have our personal home defense line of ammunition. All the bullets are solid copper and turn on a CNC style lathe. So every bullet's very concentric from bullet to bullet. Uh, we loaded them to standard pressure because we found that if we loaded them to plus P, it's definitely over penetrated. But they're designed so that after one to two inches of penetration, you get four blades that break off and radiate outward away from the main wound channel while the base continues through. And the nice thing is you don't get over penetration. The bullets will go um, typically 10 to 12 inches before stopping. 
You know, this is something that I recommend to most of my students if they're concerned with overpenetration in their home, especially if they have, you know, a house made out of vinyl and, and visqueen and, you know, drywall because, uh, well, that's, that's a real factor. We don't want to shoot at a bad guy and have it go through him or go through the wall into the neighbor's house. Yes. Uh, and the, a lot of times if we look at something like frangible ammunition as a defensive, defensive round, we lose that penetration, but with this product, we still maintain it. You've even tested it through multiple layers of denim, correct? Yes, exactly. We've done a lot of testing through uh, eight layers of denim, um, a few layers of uh, leather as well. It's still opening up and expanding about two inches after going through the gel after the denim and the leather. So it's very effective, very reliable. Um, especially in the situations like you were saying, through clothing and stuff. You never know how it's going to act. And one other added bonus to all of you guys that live in Pennsylvania, it's a Pennsylvania company, so buy yins are proud. Support Cutting Edge Bullets. Samantha Smichko with Cutting Edge Bullets. This is Meet the Pressers with Blake Macro and Matt Mallory. Now, back to Meet the Pressers. What we know is if the case isn't tossed for mootness, we can expect uh, with a pretty reasonable degree of certainty that the case will be decided in the appellant's favor. It, it, it will, because if you look at the makeup of the Supreme Court, Justice Alito is, Alito is probably the um, most prominent Second Amendment advocate on the Supreme Court, and we can reasonably expect that he will rule in favor of the, uh, of the appellant. Um, and judging by the questions that uh, Neil Gorsuch asked in the oral arguments in December, the same could be said about him. It, it appears that he's um, leaning in that direction as well. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, he's yeah. famous for not ans asking questions during a oral argument. <laughs> he went through a period of 11 years without asking a single question. Wow. Um, and actually, the question that broke his 11-year stretch was a question related to Second Amendment rights. He's a uh, widely considered to be a, a large uh, proponent for Second Amendment rights and protections. So we can consider him to be in in in, uh, in our corner as well. And although uh, Justice Kavanaugh didn't ask any opinion, or ask any questions uh, that would clue us into uh, how he would rule, we can reasonably uh, anticipate that he will issue a ruling that would be in the apple. apple appellant's favor as well. Um, what a lot of people may not be aware is that after DC versus Heller was passed in 08, there was a second Heller case that came before the spring, that came up to the uh, second circuit. Um, and it, it basically was challenging um, the uh, 10 round capacity that the District of Columbia, Columbia limited ARs to, uh, to have. And Heller brought that up to the second circuit. Um, Although the Second Circuit ruled against him and the Supreme Court didn't grant certiorari, Kavanaugh was a dissenting justice in that second Heller case. And his dissent is very interesting. And it's clear that he would have struck down that restriction as an undue burden on an individual's right to keep and bear arms for mm -hmm. self-defense. Um, so we can reasonably expect that Kavanaugh will, would rule uh, for the appellant as well. Really, in my view, from reading oral argument and, and kind of assessing the judge's history in, um, in, in, their, in their opinions, uh, it seems like Roberts is probably the swing vote. And it does appear that Roberts is, is in favor of, um, of, of striking down the law, but I couldn't get a, a, um, an indication from the oral argument 
what his opinion was on the question of mootness. So what I know of Justice Roberts is he's kind of very unpredictable. (laughs) I think that's, that's uh, fair to say. The mootness factor, that's, that's something that really is, is concerning because I know here in Pittsburgh, uh, Firearms Owners Against Crime sued the city of Pittsburgh, uh, and yeah. that case knocked the ordinances down, and uh, the case with Allegheny County Sportsman's League was considered moot because of the Firearms Owners Against Crime case knocking the ordinances down. So the, the Judge James, he didn't say yes, didn't say no. It was like, man, eh, it's moot, and there it goes. So we went ahead and appealed it. But at the Supreme Court level, there's nowhere to appeal, right? Yeah, if you if you're if your writ of certiorari isn't granted by SCOTUS, you have no other relief. The case is done. This year, 2020, is going to be a fascinating, very interesting year for um, for gun control and gun rights advocates. Um, this is not the only case that's in the circuits that has the potential to go up to the SCOTUS level. So even if the Supreme Court tosses the case for for mootness. There's several other cases in the circuits waiting in the wings for uh, a potential uh, certiorari review uh, by SCOTUS. And then on top of that, you have the 2020 election that's that's coming up. And mm-hmm. that could also very well dictate um, the future of gun rights in this country for 50 that, years. Yeah. 50 years, really, because if yeah. you look at it right now, I'm telling I'm going through the justices. Of course, there's nine of them. I named Kavanaugh, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas as clear Second Amendment advocates. Okay, that's four. You need a 5 4 decision to prevail in your case at the, at the Supreme Court level. Um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as everybody yeah. knows, is uh, she's in her early to mid 90s at this point. She's uh, suffered some bouts of cancer. She is a uh, staunch uh, proponent of gun control, yep. and she's uh, one of our most liberal judges. It's reasonable to expect that the next uh, president that's elected will have the opportunity to replace her. And um, if it is a conservative, if it's a Republican president, that has an opportunity to appoint a conservative judge, you can see Second Amendment legislation. Um, there will be a case that will be articulated and passed down to provide a guiding precedent. My firm is, uh, I'm a solo practitioner here in Auburn, New York, uh, law firm of Dominic Chacona, PC. Uh, you can uh, Google me and uh, get all my particular contact info. I'm not big on social media, which may be shocking. Um, and uh, I'm not big on web presence. Um, you know, knock on wood, thank God, um, you know, haven't had to be um, in order to have a, have a, a, a business here locally. Yeah, thank you both for having me on. It was a pleasure. No problem. Take care. I'm Lauren Harnett with Athena Defense, and this is Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. There are a lot of subtle features in there. We're looking at like five pounds, six ounces with a basic red dot and a sling unloaded. All right, cool. So, it's super light, man. Right. That's like, I mean, my, my, my AR, no way. Yeah, it's, exactly. That's, that's a large, that's the point. What we've done on the receiver, we've improved the grip angle from the earlier cab arms and G-Wax guns, so it's based on some of the popular you know, pistol grips that are out today. Right. Um, flared out the magwell. Right. A little easier transition to get it in. Yep. We've got sling attachment points in the stock that are better than the previous ones. Uh, we've got storage in the back of the stock. 
for a cleaning kit, spare parts, rerouts, ammo, whatever you want to try. Uh, Trigger is a KE Arms SLT. It's a fantastic trigger pull, has a 45 degree safety throw, and you can engage the safety whether the rifle's been fired or not. Yeah, well, you mentioned that, that's, that's a great feature. Uh, fully ambidextrous controls. So you got your, your ambi bolt release and your regular mag release. And then flipping it over, we got our regular bolt release and our ambi mag release. Um, no forward assist, I nope. noticed that. No forward assist, not necessary. Right. But we actually have a uh, fully chrome-lined uh, bolt carrier version in it, which is, again, something that Colt did originally, and the technology wasn't quite there. They had problems with the, the chrome plating process, and it would start to flake off. Chrome was a great idea. Now that we can do it reliably and properly, we really like that, that concept. Um, we have a fully captured uh, JP capture recoil system in there. Uh, it is a carbine buffer system, not rifle, because part of the idea of this receiver is building to match the material that you're using, or designing to match the material. We need more material back here to support the action of the buffer than you would with other materials. So that's why we have a carbine system. But having the captured recoil system, among other things, allows us to get rid of the buffer detent. Every once in a while, those buffer detents go, and when they do, they fall right into the fire control group, and they mess it up, muck it up. Yep. Um, we've got our own ambidextrous charging handle on there, with a little bit of gas shield, uh, carbon fiber handguard, Beautiful. super light. Smooth. Yeah, light. Yep. Um, these are all M-lock slots, so you can stick a flashlight on, you can stick a piece of rail for a bipod. Pencil weight barrel, this is one of the big, big things. This one, we're using Faxon's barrels. This one has the permanent integral flash hider, uh, which we use because we have it available when we're building the mock-up. Uh, we're actually going to use a 16-inch barrel with regular half uh, 28 threads. And I think we're going to go with a titanium uh, basic flash hider. But anyone can pull that off, put on a suppressor, put on their own muzzle device if you prefer. And we keep the light weight by using titanium out there on the muzzle brake. And I also noticed there's no uh, no sights, and I think we agree on something there. So you can put on backup irons if you want. One of the things we really like about this concept is the modularity of using your rail space. So we tinkered a lot with what's the, like what's the best general purpose off. And the conclusion that we came to, which won't be whatever it was, but our conclusion was a basic red dot right about here has no eye relief. That's one of the big things that, it, that a red dot has over a variable power optic that can go down to one. Is even a one power optic, you're still, you still have an eye box. You still have to get your head in the right position to see through it. With a red dot, you can be in any sort of weird shooting position and you can still see your sight. If you want magnification, you drop a magnifier back here. Um, we have a picture of one right there on that rifle. You can get one on a flip over mount. If you don't want it, you don't use it. Back. There's no zeroing involved, so if you don't want the weight and you don't think you need the magnification, you just pop the thing off. You want to go play with it at night, drop something like a PBS-14 But you can't do that if this much of your rail space is taken up with a rear iron sight, or as most people do, a rear plastic sight. Now, if you want that, great. Like, fly and be free, go for it. You can stick a piece of rail here, put on a front sight, put on a rear sight. Tucks right in, go nice. If you need to do something with your support hand, Open a door, control someone, yeah. deal with a dog, yeah. anything. You can shoot that rifle one-handed without any trouble. Well, that's always been my criticism of using a long gun as a home defense tool, 
you know, not many people can actually wield it one-handed and, and like hold a cell phone or keep right. a child behind them or something. This definitely gives you that option. That one you can. Well, I thank you for uh, coming up with the design on this, man. Uh, you know, all of your experience of looking at all kinds of different guns, I'm sure you were able to kind of well, see what worked and what hasn't worked throughout history. This is absolutely a collaborative process yes. between myself and uh, my co-host Carl Casarda. Uh, we spent, uh, spent like a year working on this initial rifle. Um, and what we ended up with was way better than what we expected that we would have. Through KERs, we were able to put together a group of investors willing to pony up the cash to make new mold tooling. We have our improved, this is the Mark III uh, receiver. And uh, that's what made the, the project really possible. This is Russell from KE Arms, and he's heavily involved in the development and the engineering of this rifle. What's the biggest surprise that you had in this development? What was the biggest? Yeah, we did it. What was the challenge, maybe engineering-wise? It's, it's more like the gestalt of putting everything together, right? So, like, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, okay, yeah. when you get the complete rifle together, like Ian talked about, um, the handling, the balance, everything is so much greater than any one of the components are by themselves. Like the ambi-charging handle, very simple design with that spring latch on the other side. There's no lever to actuate to disengage it, but it stays in place while you're shooting. Ambi-mag release, so I'm a left-handed shooter myself, like Ian. Much easier to actuate. This is the SLT-1. It differs from a traditional trigger in that it eliminates the disconnector. It has instead what's called a Searlink technology system. It's isolated in the front forward part of the housing you can't see. So under recoil and with the bolt cycling, the hammer can come all the way back and not impact any other parts of the fire control group. Components here are isolated from dirt and debris, so it's a lot harder for it to become fouled and inoperable through heavy shooting in a blowback uh, PCC system or through just debris that would enter the rifle in the field. Primers and mm -hmm. all kinds of, yeah. Right. Nasty. It does have a nice four and a half pound trigger. You can put it on safe with the hammer forward. So if you have a malfunction, you need to clear it, you need to transition, you can always put it on safe. You don't have to think about what is the state of the rifle. Brownells stepped up and thought it was a cool thing. And so Brownells is our exclusive distributor. Um, and hey, with their support behind it, it's, it's a very exciting project. Awesome. Any idea when they'll be hitting the streets to purchase? Quarter two. Order two. I'm looking forward to that. I definitely want to pick one up. Well, you can learn more about the rifle on your website, Brownell's website. We'll put some information on Meet the Pressers as well. So this is Clint and Ian and Matt's running the camera right now from Meet the Pressers. We'll talk to you soon. Hey everybody, Matt Meet the Pressers. We are here at the Caltech booth at 2020 SHOT Show and with Chad Enos, a good friend of mine, and he's gonna go over the P17 and tell you all about it. Yeah, so this year at 2020 SHOT Show, we're introducing the P17. We've actually uh, started shipping these already, so some people already have them, they already know about it, uh, but at SHOT Show, this is where the industry's at. So uh, funneling, funneling all into here. So the P17 is a 22 long rifle, uh, compact pistol. It's got a lot of bells and whistles, which I'll go over with you here in a second. But it comes with three 16 round magazines. Uh, it's got a fiber optic front sight. It's got an adjustable uh, rear sight for both windage and elevation. It's uh, ambi safety, uh, ambi mag release, a paddle style, like HK nice. style. Yeah. And it's got a threaded barrel, and it'll come with a, uh, an adapter, so half 28 adapter. So you put that on there, stick your can on there, have a really Pretty good time cool. with it. And then of course, uh, last but not least, it's got a pick rail on the bottom. So I'm gonna put a flashlight on there. It's uh, awesome for uh, experienced shooters to train with uh, on a budget. So you buy a bucket of bullets for nothing, you go to the range, and you can do some training or whatever, so you're not burning your 9 mil or whatever. The trigger time. Yeah, get some trigger time. And speaking of trigger, it's got an excellent trigger in it, too. Uh, not that you guys would know, because you're not here. But uh, you should be. <laughs>
But uh, yeah, and, and the best part about this gun is the MSRP is $199. Wow, yeah. that, that's that's a great price. Yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Price. So for those of you that have uh, kids of age, you know, they're starting to get a little older and you want to get them to the range and train, mm -hmm. it's a 22 long rifle. Right. It's uh, the form factor of a concealed carry gun, so you're getting them used to that uh, as well with all the you know, the safety features on it and stuff too. So. Yeah, that's actually one thing that, that Clint and I do a lot is we'll, we'll move people from a 22 up up the chain if we have somebody who's a little reluctant or is really scared or timid about firearms or even gun, you know, gunfire. Yeah, so and 22 LR by nature is also pretty accurate. Yeah. Uh, this There's no exception here. And uh, that's a big confidence builder for a new shooter too. And if you combine that with a really good trigger. Right. They're not getting discouraged. They're, yeah. Exactly. Mind, mind if I take, take your grip on it? Wow, that's light too. That 17 is, ounces. Wow, that, that is awesome. The reset's nice too. Yeah, not like bad, that. not bad. So uh, taking the gun down is super simple. Cock the hammer there. So it's just like a familiar with the Glock, you know, it's got the little, uh, yeah, little buffer paddles on the side. So you just pull them down, both at the same time, little slide back, you're wow. done. Yeah, that's it, super simple. And the weight of it, I'm assuming, because you've got a little rid of a lot here and you're using the polymer on the bottom. Exactly, yeah, the only metal parts are the important ones. Um, the heaviest, heaviest uh, parts are the barrel, the barrel block, and then of course the slide and the, and the bolt. That's it. So we were able to keep it uh, at 17 ounces to keep the MSRP at 199. So you pick them up at a gun shop for I don't know, buck 20, buck 30 or something. That's that's amazing. P17. Check them out. We're shipping now. Super. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. Sure, man. Check them out. There's a lot of sponsors that make this show possible, like Mantis. Make sure you check them out and give them your business. This episode of Meet the Pressers is made possible with the generous support of Mantis X. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Caltech, Next Level Training, ASP, Saber Red, and the Law of Self-Defense. Car Firearms Group, the Safer Faster Defense Responder, 2.0, Shooter Technology Group, and Henry Rifles. Thank you. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure you like, comment, follow, share, click the little bell. Check us out on Patreon, give us your support there. Heck, come to one of our classes or host us for a class at your location. And until next time, this is Meet the Pressers. It works. Thank you for watching Meet the Pressers.